All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I'd love for us to walk away with this morning. Our justification helps us to rejoice in hope of the glory of God and in our sufferings that serve to shape us into Christ's image. Let me read that again. Our justification helps us to rejoice in hope of the glory of God and in our sufferings that serve to shape us into Christ's image. Now, if you would, give, the, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, now as we step into this, again, we are now beginning to look at some of the outworkings and beneficences of our justification through faith. And so we want to pay close attention to that because I think a lot of times we, we have heard the term justification and we say, all right, that's, that's what got me in the building and so that's completed and we don't really need to think about that much anymore. No, justification actually is something that we should meditate on in an ongoing fashion because of what it, it gives to us, what it gains us uh, by, its, by the finished work of Christ. And so Paul's going to begin to help us to see that here, and it is the thing that unifies us, right? For all who are justified, these eternal beneficences are granted. They're not granted to those who are a little more justified than someone else. Now, the difference might be how you experience these beneficences based on what you cultivate, based on what you focus on, right? And so, uh, as we step into that, I want to keep that in mind, but I have a question for us that will help frame some of our understanding, because the call to rejoice is going to be different uh, in Paul's hands than what we normally understand. But what causes you to rejoice? What, what actually causes you to get excited and to celebrate, to give praise, to shout, to sing? Uh, we are in the South, and it is football season, and it is also the end of baseball season, and the Braves have won their fourth uh, title in a row, which is actually pretty amazing and exciting, given that team. And so, um, uh, a long-term Braves fan. Uh, we just know the playoffs are tough around here. It's, it's been tough for decades. Uh, and so, so we, these, these things are exciting to us, right? Those of you, hope springs eternal for you UGA fans until Alabama. Uh, hope springs eternal for you Tennessee fans. Great victory yesterday. You beat up the school for the blind. What was it? Missouri. Yeah. 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 And so, so we get excited about these things. We get excited when, when certain events happen in our lives, certain milestones, certain birthdays. Uh, we, we celebrated Bennett's first birthday. He won't remember none of it, except maybe there's a video that'll help him with that some. Uh, but but we, we, we celebrate these things. 
We celebrate great meals. We celebrate all kinds of stuff. But what's interesting about the things we celebrate is they're ephemeral. What does that mean? It means they're passing. They cannot hold or stay. In an interesting uh, uh, interview with Tom Brady, who's, who's won more than anybody in the world, it seems like, and just keeps winning, uh, he was asked how many Super Bowls would be enough. How many did he say? One more. And that's the old, you know, I think it was Rockefeller who said, how much money is enough, Mr. Rockefeller? He says, oh, a little bit more. And so it's never enough for us when it comes to rejoicing because we can't, we can't make that feeling stay, right? Uh, any of you have had like one of the best meals of your entire life, one of the tough parts about it is you, you can't hold it. You can't make it stay. You can't keep experiencing it. And in fact, oftentimes you go back and have that meal again, it starts to lose some of its luster after that first experience because the expectations now are insanely high. And so the things we rejoice over are deeply affected by the limitations and the finiteness of this world. But what we're going to talk about here from Paul, this kind of rejoicing is a rejoicing that's not ephemeral, that has an eternal aspect to it that can go on and on and on and be of benefit, not only to us, but to God's glory and for the life of the world. So that's important to us. Now, as we step into the text, we notice straight away there's that word therefore, and we recognize that that links us back to what was actually our assurance of pardon this morning, but verses 24 and 25 from Romans chapter four. Let me read those again for us just to give context as we're stepping in. He says, but, but it's for our sake also that Abraham was declared righteous. It was counted to him as righteous. It will be counted to us who believe in him being God who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So because of the finished work of Christ and our response to that finished work, we've submitted ourselves to that finished work saying we need it. We need it for redemption, for salvation. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is now the benefit. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does that matter? Well, he is the creator of the universe. He is the judge of all holiness and sin. What does it mean to be at peace with him? Well, it means that we have his favor. It means that we have the benefit of his power, his wisdom, his uh, uh, love, his goodness. To be at peace with this God is not merely a a detente. This is not suggesting that, hey, you're at peace with God. Now, God's going to go to the back of the universe. He's not going to bother you anymore. He's just going to let you kind of go about your business on the earth. No, we see that throughout scripture. That's not how God functions. In fact, this was Job's problem, right? Job had hoped that if he kept his sacrifices up enough, then God would just leave him alone. He would stay at the back of the universe and not bother him. In fact, that was much of the misconstrual in the Old Testament is that God just needed to be satisfied through these sacrifices so he would leave us alone. That is not what Jesus died to win. That is not what Jesus died to grant us as great gift. No, we have peace. 
with the creator of the universe, we no longer need to fear judgment because Christ's work is fully satisfying, both of our shame and guilt and God's uh, 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 judgment toward all of that sin. So we are at peace with this God who loves us and is good. This is the first and foremost beneficence of our justification. Too often we don't think about that. We don't give thanks for that. We don't wrestle with that in our times of, of, of really wondering, does God love me? Is God good? Have I done something that, that makes him not love me anymore? No, if Christ's work has been applied to you, that cannot happen. You are at peace with God. This should be one of the great motivators for us to go forward into the world each and every day. This should be something that we meditate on and give thanks for on a regular basis. But it's not just that. This peace with God affords us something else. Notice what he says in verse 2. Through him, being Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So not only do we have peace, we have presence. And remember, what is the biblical technical definition of what it means to be blessed? If you are called blessed in the Old Testament, right? It says, blessed is the one who meditates upon God's law. What does that mean? Well, it means that you have access to the presence of God. To be blessed truly means that you have access as an heir to all of the heavenly blessings, to all of the spiritual favor that the Lord could bestow upon one, access to the throne of, of mercy and grace. Hebrews 4 says, you should come boldly in a time of trouble uh, to, to receive what you need, both mercy and grace. Meaning you don't have to go to someone else and then they go for you. No, from wherever you are, you have access to the very throne of God. You don't have to find a special place to do it. There's not a temple. There's not a particular person. You don't even have to know all that much about the how. You just go, and the Lord receives you. You don't have to impress him. And think about it. We've talked about this before. How would you impress the God who created the universe, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, who's got the capability to call forth life from death. Can any of you do that? I can't. I've tried. You ought to come see my garden. You also can't call forth eternity from nothing. I've tried. You ought to see my bank account. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we don't have these abilities. And so if he's got that capability, how is it we're going to impress him? What offering are we going to bring that he's going to go, I couldn't have done that? Nothing. And yet, he longs for us to come and be with him. What kind of love is this? What kind of grace is this? this unmerited favor, this gift we don't deserve that is so profound and beautiful and will take us an eternity to try to rejoice in. And so we, because of our justification through faith, because of the finished work of Christ, we have both peace and the presence of God. Now, a thing that you could do this week that would really help you in this uh, is to go to Ephesians 1, 3-14 and pray through that. 
It's one of the great declarations of the gift of justification and all that comes with it uh, for, for us as God's people. And pray through it and ask the Lord to help you see it because there are many days on which we don't feel peace with God and we certainly don't feel his presence. How many times do we judge God's faithfulness to show up in a worship service based on how we feel? Do you have any idea how easy it is to control your emotions? I just figure out the right kind of music and I've got you. Figure out the, the right kind of things, the right kind of ways to kind of whip you into a frenzy. And that's, that's easy. It's an easy thing to control people's emotions and make them feel like something happened when it didn't. Watch any uh, documentary on a cult. This is an easy thing to do. You, you wonder, how foolish does someone have to be to, to join a cult? Look no further than yourself. All of us are liable it's just a matter of whether or not we wound, end up in a circumstance where somebody grabs a hold of our emotions and controls them. This is why we have to be vigilant to not let our emotions be the primary thing. Now, does that mean emotions don't matter? No, not at all. Emotions are wonderful gifts to us from God. And when they are in phase, what a gift it is, amen? That, that, that we would actually experience the actual presence of the Lord in and through the, the feelings. Like there, all of us have had moments, I'm sure we say, it just felt like the Lord was in that place. And it made it more significant to us. And that's good, but you still have to look at, eh, but was the place and the circumstance that it actually exalt Jesus and glorify God? Because if it didn't, the Lord was not in the place in the way in which you thought. And so it's important that we recognize that the Lord has promised every time we gather like this in his name, he will be there. And it's not up to how many people show up, the attitude with which they show up, the sound system and its workings or not workings, the, the, the parquet floor, any of the, none of that stuff keeps the Lord from showing up. And praise be to God and amen. Would that we would never tire of knowing that week in and week out, the Lord would be with his people in worship. And maybe that would begin to affect who we are and how we live out our justification in the gifts, both peace and presence, which he's going to show us. So that peace and presence with God should result now in these two things. Notice as he goes on in verse 2, he says, and as a result of us having access to the throne of grace, to God himself, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, if you are not at peace with God, who is the creator of the universe, who will judge someday based on whether or not you're in Christ or you have chosen selfishly to try to save yourself with your good behavior, would you rejoice at his coming? Would you be able to rejoice at any of his promises coming true if you were his enemy? Absolutely not, for he is a consuming fire. And we must take that seriously. But because we are justified and we are at peace with God and we are able to enjoy his presence, we are free. We get to rejoice in hope that his promises are true. And that, what he said, would come true. That Christ will return and make all things new. That's one promise. 
that the family of God will get bigger and bigger and include people that you would never invite to your own table, more than likely. Some of them may be from within your own family. He has the ability to reach into the deepest and darkest of darkness. So we, of all people, should always have hope. Not foolishly, not naming and claiming things that we don't have the, the omniscience to claim. We can only hope. But we ought to be, in any given room, the people who are able to rejoice in who God is, not be embarrassed by him. How many of you, if you're honest, and I am numbered among you, I'll go ahead and say it. There are times if God comes up in certain circumstances and conversations, you're almost embarrassed. Now, I lament to tell you in certain circumstances, I just sometimes pray, please don't ask me what I do for a living because it just gets weird from there. That is not right. That is not right. Why would I be ashamed to say that I am a pastor of this God, the Lord Most High, of this Christ who came to save, who sacrificed himself so that we could know eternal life? Why would I be ashamed of that? Now, there's some reasons, right, in our culture, because pastor means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. As I've shared with y'all, my brother-in-law is Catholic. He calls me padre. And I'm not, a, that's okay. Uh, uh, but, but he's got certain things in his head that make it hard for him to process. Why in the world are you part of this system? As has been going on in our culture, it is not the most popular thing these days to be a Christian, especially one who would say with any sort of hopeful boldness, this is what I am. Not have the conversation shift into the political, which is ephemeral and passing. Or just being ashamed of what has happened in the name of God to women and children in our culture. whether it's at the hands of somebody that you may respect and read a good bit of. So yes, that is my reasons, but those things, and this is good news, are ephemeral. They won't last near as long as the promises of God. And that's not to sweep them away, by the way, because all of those things are important and matter, and they matter to the heart of God, which is why it's more important that I would be willing to be bold, not arrogant, humble in saying, yes, I'm a pastor. I get to preach the gospel. I get to shepherd the Lord's people. And same for you as, as a Christian. If he has justified you in and through the work of Christ, and you've received that through faith by his grace in Christ alone, then there is nothing to be ashamed of about that. And so we need to be able to be a people who rejoice in the hope of God. That his glory, think of it, it is the best thing that can happen to us as God's people is that God would actually be glorified in this world. That he would actually be glorified in redemption, in restoration, in healing. What is the hope that we could have for those who have been abused at the hands of those in the church? 
What hope would we have for, for any of uh, the, 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 the women or children that have been maligned and mistreated and treated as second-class, third-class citizens? What hope could we have for their healing if not for the glory of God? Right? So we need to be a people who are able to rejoice in that. And Paul doesn't stop there. There's a second one you're not going to like very much. Not only that, verse 3, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, again, we have to remember who the God is and whose hands this process is, is undertaken. Remember what Abraham uh, recognized about the God's presence in which he stood. He said, this is the God who is able to call forth life from death and eternity from nothing. Why would I not trust him? And so how, how can our suffering eclipse the power, the capabilities, the creativity of that God? They can't. So not only does justification allow us to re rejoice in the glory of God because of his peace and his presence, it also allows for us to see that our sufferings, which, by the way, let me pause here for a second. We, we've got to make sure we, we don't lose our orienteering. That means our, our locationality, right? We, we are where? What kind of world are we in? Neutral, right? So everything's up for grabs. No, what kind of world is this? It is fallen. How, how, okay, but how fallen? Kinda. I mean, we just talked about having great meals and, and, and doing great things. We have fun in this world. I mean, Tennessee won yesterday. It's not completely fallen, is it? Or is it? It is completely fallen. And what is guaranteed for everybody, whether you are in the family of God or out of the family of God in a fallen world. What is guaranteed? You will suffer. At some point, either you'll suffer the, the limitations, right? It could be aging. It could be loss. It could be any number of things. As much as I want to kind of be able to think I, I can treat my body as an experiment and can overcome some of this stuff because, you know, again, Tom Brady, uh, it, it just, it doesn't work. So I've been trying this elixir, which is supposed to burn fat without you even having to work out, right? Which just sounds amazing. And it's olive oil, pure, extra virgin, no less, and cayenne pepper and honey, uh, and there's something else. What else is it? Uh, lemon juice to kind of help with the cayenne, Okay. So I've been doing this, and my wife's like, are you insane? I'm like, no, I'm a scientist that's different. You can trust me. You can trust me. Our culture's proved you can trust me. I'm a scientist. So I've been drinking this stuff, and guess, guess what has been the result? Well, careful now. Now, here's the problem. I have a condition that I can't fix. It's called Hashimoto's. That's why my hair looks like it does or doesn't. <laughs> Uh, it is an autoimmune disease. And guess what Hashimoto's, of those ingredients, does not like at all? Cayenne pepper. So I've had indigestion like you wouldn't believe. And maybe this is the weight loss part, because I don't want to eat anything, because I feel terrible. I didn't take it this morning, because I said, enough's enough, I'm just going to be fat. Or I'm going to have to do something else besides drink a magic elixir, right? And so no matter how hard I try, 
I cannot overcome the limitations of my Hashimoto's. There are certain foods I just cannot, it's driving my wife crazy because the list is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. I love her lasagna. So anything with like tomatoes and pasta, it's just tough for me. Um, I'm going to sweat all night long. It's just not awesome. And so this is a limit, right? So maybe some of you have a condition or a set of conditions that that limit you. And no matter how hard you try, you're not going to overcome that limit. You can... you can do keto, you can do whatever, you're gonna die of heart disease, but the other thing may not kill you. Uh, and so uh, we, we kick against the goads quite a bit, don't we? But at the end of the day, our limits have the final say. And as Ecclesiastes would say, the great limiter is death. You will die. Which seems kind of morbid. No, it's just honest. And between your living and dying, you will suffer in some measure. We all do. We suffer our limitations. So praise be to God that we have this as true, that your suffering doesn't have to be meaningless or dehumanizing. What a gift. Because how much of suffering feels just utterly dehumanizing? As if it's, as if it's actually uh, uh, unrolling our image bearing. And so he says, not only that, but we get to rejoice in our sufferings for these reasons. Because if you're justified, this is what can happen to your suffering. It can be used in this way. That suffering produces endurance. Why is endurance important for life in a fallen world where there's limitations and suffering? And how, how does that glorify God? Right? Right? It does, think about it, to endure, to hang on, to cling to the crucified, to to not give up on rejoicing in the goodness of God just because of your suffering, that produces an endurance that the world has a hard time understanding because we live in a world that is filled with a bad case of the can't-evens. Most days, people just can't even. And this ain't new. Right? It's funny, we like to lob it at the millennials and say, you snowflakes, while the boomers absolutely lose their mind if some guy's knee touches the ground during a song. We are fragile all across the board, which is why we all need Jesus. And so it's important that we recognize that endurance is a key quality and helps you to understand if your suffering is actually being used for the glory of God. And not only does it help you with endurance, which we all desperately need, it does something else, which we've been talking about. It produces, so it is the natural outworking, it is a guaranteed result, character. For those of you who've been wondering, since we've been having this conversation about character over behavior, right? Well, how do I work on my character? All right, well, here's how. Remember your justification and that that it grants you peace and presence with God so that when suffering comes, you are able to endure because of which way you run. Your character will be formed as you endure. You can't form character under any other circumstance. It just doesn't happen Through experimentation, it doesn't happen by reading a book. It has to be shaped and formed in the crucible itself. 
How do you know when you are patient? What must you do? You must wait. How long? Who knows? The longer you wait, the more patient you become. The more you endure. How do I know when I'm forgiving? Well, what, what must happen first? You must be sinned against. And you must be involved in the process. It's not sinned against by somebody online in Seattle, but someone local to you, sinned against within your own home. How will you know if you're forgiving? And by the way, that is not a one and done deal. Well, I, I forgave and therefore I can check that off. That is an ongoing reality. How will you know when you are steadfast in love? Well, steadfast being a key qualifier, going to take a while. And so this is how we become like Jesus. The suffering that we are guaranteed to endure in this fallen world, particularly for those of us who are justified. You do know that being justified doesn't decrease the suffering, it increases it. You understand that, right? This is why our lost friends can say, about different circumstances, that really doesn't bother me that much. No wonder. Right? No wonder because you, you aren't offended as God is offended. If we are in God, there are certain things that ought to be offensive to us, that ought to hurt us in ways that it wouldn't hurt or affect our, our unbelieving friends and neighbors. And so it is through this suffering, which is guaranteed, which is going to be increased for the people of God because it's a fallen world and the principalities and powers of darkness just don't like you very much or me very much. And therefore, everything is against us except for God who is for us, which Paul in Romans 8 is going to declare the greatest peace and truth of all. If God be for us, then who? Who can actually be against us? Now, does that allow us to be arrogant? No, because people are still martyred. People still die. People still suffer. No, it allows you to be hopeful. That's different. It allows you to rejoice. And notice, out of this character, what rises? As your character is formed, that produces a greater hope. Hope in the finished work of Christ. Hope in the promises of God. Hope in God's love, mercy, grace, and goodness. And this hope does not put us to shame. It is something that we can live in with great humility, but have a boldness and firmness to us that is unwavering when, as Peter says, we are asked, what is the reason for this hope that is within you? That we would be quick to declare, not apologize or back away from, because we are, in some measure, uh, uh, offended by what others have done in the name of Christ. That is offensive. It, it, is, it should be lamented. It is part of the suffering, is it not? That we would be counted. So are you, so are you an evangelical? You one of them things? Are you this? Are you that? No, no, that's not what should dictate whether or not we have hope. What should dictate is the finished work of Christ that allows us to be at peace with God, who's the one who matters, who we ought to be at peace with, whose presence is of benefit to us, that allows us to, to rejoice in who he is and what he's going to do, but also to endure suffering and to have our character shaped. 
So for those of you who maybe find yourself in a desert place or you feel like you're just, you're not really getting much marrow out of the bone or you're not feeling very much, here is a place that you may want to turn. Could be that you are failing to appreciate your justification and the finishedness of that reality. Remember, justification is not just legal, it's familial. It's, it's not just that you've been forgiven or that you've been let off the hook. It's that you've been declared as if you've never done anything wrong of any kind. And you are worthy of the very love and, and goodness of God and should be an heir to all the heavenly promises. That is what justification is. And by beginning there and recognizing, no, this gives me peace with God and it, and it affords me his presence... And then look and see how you're responding to suffering. Maybe that this desertness, this dryness is, is not something from external, it's something from within. And that's good news that we have somewhere where we can turn, where we can look to, and, and there can be springs in the desert. Now, not all dryness is a result of our disobedience. Sometimes it's just the testing of God. This is where we have to trust him. In fact, I've argued many times, you've heard me say it here, in some of the darkest hours of my my own spiritual walk, which numbered years, the most important thing I did was cling to the crucified. I stayed in the word. I did not get much out of it on most days. But the cumulative effect of it is what carries me now. For those of you who think, man, Cameron kind of knows the scripture, it's because of that time, not because of seminary. Not because of preaching, it all rises from that. That's where the well was actually built up. But if you'd have flown back in time and asked me how I was doing spiritually, I'd have told you I am, I am that the thread that, that I have that I'm hanging on by is beginning to fray and it sounds like it's gonna pop. That's what I would have said. But that, that moment was the most formative in terms of my character, in terms of endurance. And you may say, that was endurance? Yeah, it was. And so this, this does not put us to shame. It doesn't put us to shame because, and notice the great gift that we in the Reformed circles often fail to appreciate the fullness of, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Holy Spirit is an insane gift to us because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means Again, back to what we said earlier, you don't have to find a special place to worship or encounter God. All you have to do is pray, and you encounter the Lord your God. You are in uh, communion with the Holy Spirit in so doing. Even the most pitiful of prayers, and Paul's going to tell us this even later, even when your prayers are so pitiful that that you, you cease to use words, the Holy Spirit will groan on your behalf. Amen. And you may say, Cameron, aren't you setting us loose to not care? No, I'm setting you loose to recognize the reality and how much God loves you. Hopefully it's setting you loose to actually worship and not experience so much of the dry and desert places because you think it means something that it doesn't. And you're turning to all the wrong places to, to find your way out. This Holy Spirit is always going to exalt Christ. Always. So if you're worried about, hey, 
what's the Holy Spirit supposed to do? Am I supposed to speak in some foreign language? Am I supposed to be able to predict the Powerball numbers? Like, what, what, what's he supposed to do? No, he will exalt Jesus always. Don't be silly. And he will convict of sin as a result, which means part of your experience of the Holy Spirit should be periodic and frequent conviction of sin. Now, why would I say periodic and frequent? Because I know me, and I know some of y'all. And praise be to God that we would have within, we ain't got to go somewhere to find out, did we do wrong? Think of how maddening that would be if it were required that you had to come make an appointment in my office and for me to kind of go through your week and tell you where you messed up. You don't have to do that. Spirit will convict. What about guidance? What about wisdom? You don't have to come to a mediator. Y'all don't, by the way, on this one. But you have the Holy Spirit within you to turn to. And again, what's he always going to do? If he's guiding you somewhere, what will it do? Always exalt Jesus. This Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture. And always make much of your justification, which is peace with God and presence with God. And so, as we conclude, here's what Charles Hodge has to say about this passage, and this is a, a worthy of your meditation this Lord's Day Sabbath. He says, if we are genuine children of God, we have peace of conscience. Think about what a gift that is. Some of us have noisy consciences. Mine is noisy. I have a very messy soul. That's not true of everybody, but this is a great gift to me. To know that I have peace of conscience with God. Although I'm going to wrestle with it, and although it's going to be a, it needs to be cultivated, it's part of the suffering to endurance to character to hope part that doesn't put me to shame. But he goes on, he says, in a sense of God's favor. What a gift it is. The creator of the universe will bestow favor upon you. Not, and remember, in Rome, they're struggling with favor as in better than. No, it is favor as in loved by God. And then freedom of access to his throne. We should run to the throne of grace, not only when we've sinned, not only when we've been sinned against, but in suffering. We should run to the throne of grace in rejoicing, something we, as Reformed folk, don't often do. And then he says, we endure afflictions with patience. Instead of making us distrustful of our heavenly Father, they, being the afflictions, afford us new proofs of his love. And strengthen our hope in his mercy. So how is being at peace with and having access to God helping you to rejoice in the hope of his glory? Is it, is the better question. And if it's not, where should you turn? You should turn to the person work of Christ and meditate upon your justification. And then how has your various sufferings helped to meaningfully shape you into Christ's image? If they are not, it is not on his side of the account that's the problem. It's on our side. And how we're using the means of grace and who we're inviting in to help us bear the burden. One of the means of grace is the, the fellowship of the saints. Too often, one of the reasons why we don't benefit from our suffering is we self-isolate. We don't invite others in to pray. We don't want them to see our weakness. We don't want to burden them. We've got all kinds of great excuses that don't help. And so what does Romans 5, 1 through 5 teach us? It teaches us that our justification helps us because of the peace and presence of God 
to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and in our sufferings that serve to shape us into Christ's image. So church, would you join me in asking for the Holy Spirit to help us have a more robust appreciation for our justification, that we would not just leave it in the past as, as this work, okay, that's taken care of, I never have to worry about it again, but as deep encouragement for life along the way because we have peace with God and access to his presence. And would you join me in asking the Spirit to help us grow and being a people who can rejoice. Rejoice in both the promises of God, not ashamed of who we are in him, and also recognizing that our sufferings are the very means by which he shapes us into the image of Christ. What a gift that would be to know that our suffering is not meaningless. Even though we hate it at times, even though we don't understand it, even though we'd rather, I'd rather y'all, one of y'all suffer this way than me, because I love spicy stuff. That's a peccadillo compared to what Christians are suffering in Iran or Morocco or Afghanistan or Palestine or other places. But would you, would you join me in longing for to be able to appreciate the beauty and the glory of our justification that comes through faith by God's grace alone in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've justified us. Thank you that we have peace with you, which is not just a detente or a ceasefire, but it is an actual welcoming. It is a hospitable declaration that means that we can boldly come to receive from you all that we would need in any given time of trouble, both mercy and grace. God, thank you that, that we are able to be in your presence, that we get to experience the goodness of your nearness. Would you help us, Lord, to understand and, and, and experience that more fully, to recognize where you have promised that uniquely to happen and to be more expectant of you and your presence. And God, thank you that we can rejoice we can rejoice in what you promised and what you said would come true. We need not fear the end. The end is deliverance for us. And God, thank you that we can suffer meaningfully, that you can transform it because of your ability to call forth life from death and eternity from nothing. You can transform it into the very character of Christ in us, which causes us to be a more hopeful, rejoicing, and exultant people. May that be true of us, Lord. May we be a city on a hill. In Christ's name, amen.